Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes Unscripted Podcast, where we chat with some of our friends, former guests, and industry pals. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga, and today we're fortunate to have back on the podcast a good friend of the show, a lit manager and producer who's worked at William Morris, UTA, and the Hollywood gang at Warner's. Last time he was on the show, we talked about how he helped get Miss Sloan, starring Jessica Chastain, onto the big screen after receiving a query from a South Korean-based screenwriter named Jonathan Pereira. Uh, if you missed that episode, you can find it on our website, scriptsandscribes.com. It's also on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And this time, we're going to chat about how we discovered another great new talent, writer-director Joe Miale, whose first feature film, Revolt, stars Lee Pace, uh, who is Joe McMillan on Halt and Catch Fire and Ronin on Guardians of the Galaxy. And it comes out theaters on November 17th. Mr. Scott Carr, thanks for coming back on, Scott. Of course, thank you, Kevin, for inviting me. Um, so last time we talked um, about your client, Jonathan Pereira, mm -hmm. uh, and basically followed the whole development process of Miss Sloan, which if you haven't seen the film, it's fantastic, with Jessica Chastain. Um, and we, you can listen to that whole podcast. Because you found him through a query. Mm-hmm. He was a, based in South Korea. He's obviously, he's not South Korean, but he's he was, British. He's but yeah, Brit he was an expat teaching English in South Korea. And this time we're going to talk about uh, Joe Miale, who's one of your clients, mm -hmm. who is a writer director. So this is a sort of a different take on it as opposed to Jonathan, who's a writer. Um, and how his whole career started and his, new, his first feature film, his directorial debut comes out uh, this month. Revolt. Um, I had the opportunity to see it. It looks huge. It's amazing um, what he could do with so little. Um, it's sort of a cross between, uh, I know it's described as a cross between Monsters and District 9, but I think it's really more of a cross between War of the Worlds and District 9. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it, it really is, is, is terrific. Yeah, so. Joe's original comps when he was devising the idea was the Born and Identity meets War of the Worlds. Okay. Yeah, because it deals with a, a character who um, is suffering from a form of amnesia, right. trying to find his place in the world. But the new take on it is it's during the middle of a devastating invasion, um, which adds the scope to it that differentiates it further from Born and adds a new twist on War of the Worlds. Right. Yeah. Um, and Joe did a fantastic job. Joe, uh, you know, uh, I have to say, which I was talking to you about earlier, he, he's freaking fantastic. He's immensely talented. Um, that being said, it's his first film, and he's been your client for a little while. Can you talk about how you guys found each other? How his, you know, how you sort of were able to build, help build his career to mm -hmm. the point where he got his first film made and ready to be released, and that whole thing. You know, that's, you know, you can of course, be happy to <laughs> synopsize yeah. that. Um, I want to say it was. 2010 mm -hmm. or 2011, um, I was an assistant at the time at um, the United Talent Agency. Right. And I was one of those guys, like I'm sure many of my, my peer group, and that would just scour the mediaverse looking for talent. And the internet's just a, a wonderful resource to access potential talent if you're willing to look through all the hay to find the needle. And... Um, I think I was maybe Googling a number of short films, maybe with a visual effects component, because that, um, that's just a visual aspect I knew that can help move the needle rather quickly for young directors if they've got a handle on that. And I came across a short that Joe had done called Decibel. And it was like a two minute 
short that ended up being a proof of concept for an idea that he had for a feature. But he went off and shot this incredible looking um, sci-fi action thriller short um, for, for virtually no money. It's astounding how once again he did it for so little resources. And it looked a lot like Joe Kaczynski's movie Tron. But oh. Tron hadn't even come out yet, or right. it was in post. I mean, so like, it's like Joe actually had a, a, an aesthetic that then ended up looking a lot similar to something that was done thereafter on the feature film. But I, um, I was blown away by this short. And so it said, I think I saw it on Vimeo, and then I reached out to him over Facebook because I'd found his name. And we didn't have any mutual friends or anyone at the time, so I just sent him a message just saying, hi, I'm a assistant at the United Talent Agency and I saw your short decibel and I think you're really talented. I don't know if you're local or if you're represented, but I'd love to get together and grab a cup of coffee. And he messaged me back very quickly and said, I do live in Los Angeles and that would be great. <laughs> so we got coffee in Beverly Hills a few days later and Joe, you know, at the time he was like in his early 30s and um, smart, articulate, life experience behind him, great in the room. We clicked, we shared a similar sensibility in a lot of movies and he was unrepresented and just a young filmmaker, you know, six, seven years out of film school, he went to NYU, trying to figure out how to kind of break his way into the movie industry. And so we talked a lot about what that would look like for him and what previous work he'd done. And he had a really impressive reel and website with some spec stuff that he'd done. So I had then, I knew like just being an assistant at the time, I definitely need to figure out a way to support him with a legitimate piece of representation if I can pull that off with my resources at the agency. And fortunately, um, an agent at the agency, Jason Burns, who represents the directors of Star Wars and, and, and Tomb Raider, and he's got a hu huge list of big filmmakers, was really impressed by Joe's work. And I... And he met Joe and, and took him on as a client. And so Joe kind of had that, 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 you know, bigger piece of representation to support him. But me as kind of the guy that was in the trenches, I was there to kind of just work out all the minutiae to see how we can bring something to Jason to help activate a career for Joe. Mm -hmm. So, so when I was still an assistant, I think it was either I was still an assistant or I was just making the transition to manager um, Joe had uh, come up with the original idea that ultimately became Revolt. And, uh, and previous to that, like because he wanted to, to pad his reel with more stuff, he got into bed with the people over at Machinima and he was hired to do some short films based on some video game IP they'd licensed. So we did a really cool short film based on uh, Assassin's Creed mythology and then one based on Half-Life, the video game. Um, as well as selling an original um, pilot to them, which he got to shoot. And so he was actually building up his resume even further over those first year, year and a half. And then he came up with the idea for Revolts. And, um, and then we shared, we put him in the room with two or three producers that we knew are open to the prospect of working with a first-time director mm -hmm. if they respond to the material and then that filmmaker's willing to roll their sleeves up and do the work for free until they have something they can potentially sell. 
And um, to Joe's credit, he was put in the room with a handful of producers and he impressed them all with this idea. Because he didn't just walk in with a loose idea. He like walked in with a pitch, even though it was a general meeting because they hadn't met him. He was prepared to walk in and talk about this idea because he knew what it was. He'd put together a, a look, like a, a, a visual expression of it. He cut together a sizzle or a mood reel. All these things just to get the most bang for your buck from that meeting, even though it might appear to be rather impromptu, but it was very strategically planned right. on his part. And so he went into these rooms and he really impressed these producers, one of which um, was Brian Kavanaugh Jones, who ultimately is one of the lead producers on the film. And he was the producerial architect of this process with Joe. And Brian was extremely impressed with Joe and with this idea. And ultimately we decided, because all the producers actually were, but we decided to partner with Brian because he had a track record of being extremely effective with young filmmakers in this scope and space in this genre. And so the process then became about what it looks like for most people when you're trying to get something made is Joe had to spec a screenplay. So Joe went off and wrote the first draft of the script and this is like 2013. Okay. And um, the first draft of the script was a very small, contained version of this movie, almost exclusively set inside the opening sequence of the movie was in a police station. Mm -hmm. The whole movie was set almost inside or around that police station. So it will be done on an extremely low budget. Sure. Um, because that was the instinct at least to start because at least then you know you're not going to be hamstrung by it's too big for him. Right. And then, um, and then in reading that, and then um, Joe and Brian also kind of they there was always this this kind of organic aspect of the story that felt like it needs to be bigger. It just feels like we're missing too much, and let's figure out how to expand the scope of this story without blowing the budget out of the water. And so Joe went back and did a second draft where. The police station sequence became just the opening sequence, mm -hmm. and then it became a road movie. And he wrote that draft of the script, and that got Brian and Brian's partners, who came on shortly thereafter um, over at 42, um, Ben and Rory, and they were like, this is definitely something that we, can get, that we think we can figure out how to do. There were some refinements done to the script, and then ultimately they um, started to expose, and then prior, to, once he finished the script, since he's a first time director, the, the, the next step came to be able to convince people that, that he's a director that can actually physically know how to shoot this movie for a price and have a style about him and an aesthetic about um, his vision. So um, they gave him $5,000 and Joe went off and shot a proof of concept that was you know, 40 miles outside of Los Angeles, doubling for West Africa. Right. And uh, he cast it with young professional actors and they shot for like a day out there. Um, and they did a real, an original score, sound design, visual effects. Yeah, at a, at a post house, uh, another client of mine, Chris Allender at Soapbox Film, allowed them to cut, cut and do the visual effects there. All done for virtually no money. And that was a really impressive three-minute expression of what this movie could be. And then you put together a director's lookbook, which is like a 40-page a document show with pilfering images from the internet to show his vision for more um, pictorially with kind of like salient text points along the way. And they basically took this little package of material out to the financial market. 
Um, and then among, and that was Brian's job and Ben's job. And then they, they, had, they had got Voltage, which is Nick Chartier's company, interested in the prospects of the project. And they met with Joe. They were really impressed with Joe. Um, and then um, they had decided that if they can do the mo movie for basically under $4 million, despite <laughs> the scale of right. the script, if that's a feasible process, then they could get this movie done and not have to cast Matt Damon in the lead. Right. Like they could basically cast anyone that they feel has some foreign value, but doesn't have to have carried a number of, of, of blockbuster movies. And um, that's when they began a casting process and Berenice was the first to come on and Joe got to, and this is where we get to the traditional aspects of how a movie comes together. Like you have a financier now, um, you have your producers, you have your script, you have your vision for it, you have your business model, and they start going out to talent. And Joe and Berenice had met and they hit it off and she was the first piece of talent attached. Um, she had just come off Skyfall, so she was a really exciting um, actress out there. And, um, and then actually there was a, an actor was cast that didn't end up following through on the movie because he had a scheduling conflict towards the beginning of production. But um, that actor um, was actually in the film until about a month before and then oh. fell out due to a scheduling conflict. And fortunately, again, to the producer's credit and to Joe's credit to be able to mobilize kind of damage control on that, they were able to get Lee Pace. And it was the weekend after Gardens of the Galaxy had actually opened. Mm. So Lee was a relatively hot commodity right. coming off of that film. And I, I guess he was looking to do something that maybe he wasn't covered in a bunch of makeup and he could be the lead of the film sure, and carry the film. Yeah. He's a tremendous actor. Very traditionally um, schooled, Juilliard graduate, professional on set, great range. Um, so Joe was actually on set location scouting while this other actor fell out and they had to recast. So Joe met Lee for the first time over Skype oh. while Lee was in New York or LA and mm -hmm. Joe was off in Africa prepping his movie because the, the machine was already running because right. they had their cast in place. And then to lose the actor and have to bring someone on was just something that was just they had to do. And they got Lee. And then um, they knew the movie was... Because they didn't even stop. Again, to the producer's credit, like when they lost their actor, they didn't like shut the movie down. <laughs> right. They're like, we'll just figure this out. Right. You, you don't have time to stop over there. Because they were, Joe was having to do a revision. It's like a production revision draft. Because when you're making a movie for $3.5 million, it has to be... 90 pages and not much longer because like every page is a day and money. So Joe was making uh, re production revisions to the draft while on location with his DP who had shot Independence, Independence Day incidentally in some really big movies like Narnia and um, Stargates. And they had, a, they had like the whole prep crew over there. And, um, and that was like summer of 2014. And then... Um, and then everything was locked in when Lee came on board and he went out and they, sh they it was a 33 day shoot in and around Johannesburg. So 33 days for a movie that had like 400 extras and a hundred person sure. crew and five major set pieces and a sprawling narrative that seemingly on the screen transverses a thousand miles, even right. though 
in the movie, in the, they actually operated within 40 miles of Johannesburg at any given moment. <laughs> but it just had such a vast landscape that they could create the illusion they were just crossing all of Africa. Again, the production designers and the location managers out there were tremendous. Um, but to, you know, Joe had 33 days to put an entire feature in the can on, of great scope sure. with two cameras and a couple aerial drones, but they pulled it off a great crew out there. Even Joe, Joe being like a first time director, he'd been directing shorts and spec commercials and he'd been an editor previously. So, you know, in my opinion, even in that room, when it came to the production, he was still going to be the person everyone would turn to because they saw his leadership abilities and his confidence. Right. He knew what he was doing. Um, um, and so they got the whole movie in the can on time and on budget. Wow. And um, they returned to Los Angeles to start the editing process. And fortunately, on a film where you don't have a release date, where you're not charging to a certain time when it has to be out, you have time... They're editing the movie at the, at the Voltage offices in Beverly Hills, so that it was like a suite that was available to them. They aren't renting a space every right. day. Um, and they started cutting the film. And, and then, you know, they go through, through that entire process, which kind of reveals, you know, what the movie has become in that third phase of the writing process, which is the editing process. And, um, and then ultimately, once they had gone through that process, like on many films... They decided that they wanted to get some certain elements they wanted to change. And, and fortunately enough, um, the, the producers and the financiers had allocated an opportunity for them to return for um, about a week of reshoots to cover some new territory and some new aspects they wanted to alter about the, uh, the story, which was all the natural evolution of how movies can get made when they're being handled by people that have the you know the the wherewithal and the foresight to just roll their sleeves up and do the work and joe was very much at the helm of that um and and um encouraging that process and then so they're they went to back to africa and they shot for about another week um again very expansive and dynamic shooting schedule with big set pieces and stunts and and, and the actors came back, of course, and Lee, and and then um, they were able to reintegrate that footage and get like what became the final version of the movie, while all the while doing post-production in the UK and Berlin, because we have a movie here with close to 500 visual effect shots in it, um, and they're being done simultaneously with the reshoots and they have to kind of see the final version of the movie to be able to determine exactly what visual effects they are going to render because mm -hmm. it's expensive. It's not like where you, here's nine versions of this set piece, Michael Bay, which one do you want? Right. Like you have to pick and choose exactly what shots you're going to put in the film so you can build in the effects. So once that, that final lock of the picture was done in 2015, then the the time-consuming process of integrating all of these visual effects into the film at a very, I think the effects budget itself was like a, under a million dollars on a film that ended up costing less than four. Mm -hmm. But when one quarter of your budget is the visual effects because it is a sci-fi movie. And then, but again, they had the luxury of nopping up against a release date so they can spend the time to refine these effects and do them as well as they can. And 
the effects house um, automatic with no direct correlation to the production company right. that made it. Um, and Post Republic did a fantastic job creating these photorealistic iterations of these really terrifying drones. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, that once that whole year long process of putting in the visual effects and making sure the whole movie was locked in while simultaneously doing the sound design and Bear McCreary came on to do the score and obviously he's, you know, Walking Dead and 10 sure. Cloverfield Lane. He just knew he's just such a great asset to the production. Again, all of this being overseen by Joe and his intuition on who are the right people to hire and what's the right expression of the movie and the tone in order to really capture what feels like this distinctive expression of what he wants to do with the story. And then um, once the final film was done, like the plan with a movie of this nature where you haven't built out most of your distribution other than a couple of the foreign sales markets that were pre-sold at Cannes um, was to find um, its distribution, namely its domestic distribution. And, uh, and unfortunately, this um, one of the one of the more premier um, distributors in the day and date release cycle, Vertical Entertainment, were really excited and bullish on the film. So at a distributor screening, they had come in and and bid on the project and ultimately it acquired it. Um, and then the process of refining it to their expectations, which fortunately and again to the credit of I think the distributor, the film was they were very impressed with everything that they had seen. There was not like a massive transformative aspect to what happened thereafter. And, um, and then it became about the release strategy and the best time and dates and way in which you can kind of carve out your identity in the market with this film on a day and date release, which if many people aren't familiar with that, that means it's going to be released um, in an exclusive pay window first on, in this case, DirecTV, um, and Vertical were in cahoots, so DirecTV had an exclusive one-month pay window, and then the film comes out theatrically on the same day it's released on all video-on-demand platforms oh, okay. like Apple and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So the, it, it was released actually a few weeks ago exclusively on DirecTV, and then it comes out theatrically on November 17th, where it'll play in 12 major markets around the country, and at the same time come out on um, video on demand. And, you know, in the meantime, these last couple of weeks, it's really about just, you know, teeing up the, the various creative promotional ways in which they can kind of get the word out there, being mm -hmm. podcasts and, and articles. And, and uh, there's going to be a premiere in Los Angeles the week after next. So that'll be an exciting opportunity for the cast and crew to get back together and watch the movie on the big screen. And, um, Which I do think you should watch it on the big screen. I mean, it's, it was, it's a big feeling movie. The, the sound, and I mean, it's it's designed to be watched in a theater. I think ideally, yes. Yeah. Like I think that the, the challenges of any of of any movie in the theatrical market these days is how do you justify the expenditure of having someone sure. be prominently displayed in the in a theater for a long period of time because it's a it's really a marketing equation mm -hmm. than it is anything else. Um, and in the case of this film, where it really, I think the the eyeballs that are going to drive the revenues are going to be the video on demand audience. But the theatrical market gets to have the opportunity to be able to go and see it on a much larger aspect ratio and format because it does have that scope. Sure. Um, but when you're dealing in the sci-fi genre, um, you know, there's 
there's the independence days of the world and the war of the worlds of the world and that becomes kind of this, the, the standard of what theatrical sci-fi looks like and, and this movie was never set out to actually try to compete with hundred million dollar sci-fi movies because it's literally done for one thirtieth of the budget right. um, or one sixtieth in the right. case of like the sequel of Independence Day because the movie was ultimately made for less than four million dollars so it's really more akin to something like monsters and simnombre and more like intimate character journeys in that sense but there is this additive visual expansive component to it that i actually do think brings out astounding cinematic production value um considering the resources and um it makes for what i think is a really kind of special piece of indie sci-fi because it has this epic feel and indie sci-fi usually becomes like the contained movie with the guy stuck in the cell and he's living the same day over again or something like that where this actually feels like uh, a big film but it's just being told within the milieu of what usually is a small film when it comes to its production design so so that what i think is like the, the 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 challenging balance that was accomplished um, that Joe set out to do, and it's a, it's a tightrope to be able to deliver on both sides of that fence. Um, and uh, I think the final result really kind of speaks for itself when you, whether you're going in to watch like a movie that feels like it's got an exciting action sci-fi element to it because it's got yeah. those set pieces that are really tense and dynamic and they really do like justify the expression of a big movie. But if you also were satisfied by more of an intimate character journey between these two people that are trying to find their place in the world during this devastating alien invasion, the, the, the story and point of view is on the ground with them. Like there is expansive shots that kind of show their journey, but it's not, you don't break the point of view and go off and like learn about what is the mythology and the story behind the invasion. That's what so many of those movies kind of ultimately end Absolutely. up doing, if, if anything, by virtue of the genre and needing to expand the narrative scope of it so people are aware of what's going on. Right. This is all done through the point of view of a character who's essentially lost his memory. Right. So the audience is kind of in his perspective where they don't know more than he does. And that makes it a little bit more of a mystery mm-hmm. in that sense. And then him uncovering actually what happened to him, which throughout the course of the movie ends up really building to a narrative reveal, which I think is really exciting and interesting in relation to the character and the movie. Right. Um, so again, this is all these creative and, and, and produ- production elements that Joe was balancing um, in kind of creating the final expression of the film. Mm-hmm. Well, you had mentioned you had sort of discovered him through like a short or something you had seen online. Mm-hmm. Um, and you contacted him through Facebook. And then you had mentioned he had done a number of things, like he had a solid reel. What kind of things had uh, Joe done in terms of like spec commercials, short films? Like how many pieces of material had he done to that point, um, you know, not a, not a tremendous amount per se. Like he wasn't being hired to direct a bunch of commercials or anything. He it's mostly self-generated content sure. that Joe is proactively putting together. 
he had done a spec commercial for like a Gatorade for Gatorade. Mm-hmm. He was doing some actually some really prominent PSA ads with like some big talent like Julia Lewis Dreyfus and Martin Sheen and 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 people of that nature. And um, he had shot some um, music videos that he had that he had put together. All just I think if anything showing this distinctive visual style and sense of tone and pace and those necessary elements to really show that you have a point of view as Mm -hmm. a storyteller and a filmmaker. So I would say maybe accumulatively under, maybe under 10 minutes worth of footage. Okay. Uh, And then he built out another... 10, 12 minutes or so of final footage through the stuff with Machinima that I'd mentioned. Mm-hmm. So by the time he was making Revolts, and he'd done some work as an editor on trailers and shorts and the feature, but like, you know, that, I think directors that know how to edit can be very helpful when you're making a movie because you know exactly how this movie is going to be constructed or sure. you have a sense of it so you know how to cover your scenes better. Um, so when he was ultimately kicking off to make Revolt, he had about 20 minutes worth of polished final footage in various narratives. Right. Um, and that came from a number of short films that he had shot and spec commercials and exactly. PSAs and things. Gotcha. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And then in, and when it came to um, you know leveraging that into getting Revolt made, I think you know, all of it helped, but I think it's the experience built from that um, more so than anything, because at the end of the day, even in this town, unless it's like a 20 minute short, people are probably not going to watch 20 minutes worth of several different shorts or commercials. Right. They might look at a reel or they might look at one of the shorts that is the best one that's going to be the representation of that person's sensibility and style. But ultimately, with, with Joe, you put Joe in a room with someone and he's going to impress them because he's an excellent communicator and he has a clear sense of vision while remaining open to the collaborative aspects and ideas of other smart people around him. So there's that confidence that I had as a representative saying that as long as we have something that we could be talking about that speaks to Joe's interests, we need to put him in front of it because he's going to be the one that's actually going to really get it done. So putting him in the room with Brian Cavanaugh-Jones or putting him in the room with other producers or financiers Joe kind of like moves his own needle in that sense. Right. Uh, and that's an attribute that I think, you know, speaking more generally about representation and film, filmmakers, I think directors really can, can um, benefit from that type of personality mm-hmm. because directing is decision-making, directing is leadership, directing is communication, among many other things. Um, and, uh, and Joe just kind of, personifies and epitomizes, I think, what is uh, a fantastic, professional, dynamic filmmaker that, you know, is just kind of carving his own niche in how he wants to be defined as as a director. And my job is to just advise and help shape that and then making sure that I'm linking up with the strongest relations to help him realize what he ultimately wants to do as a storyteller. Right. And I noticed on uh, Revolt, mm-hmm. he had a co-writer, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he came to you, when you found him, you found him from his reel or a short film. So you signed him as a director. 
Well, he was, was a, he he was, a writer at the time. He was always well? a writer director. Okay. Yes. So I guess you know to clarify that he was always a writer director, and then uh, I did read some of his material after sitting with him because he had been writing, and he's an exceptional writer as well. Mm-hmm. So like he is kind of a quintessential writer director. That's he he is certainly the kind of guy that could direct someone else's material and is open to that, but he doesn't have to be fed something to be able to go off and create an opportunity sure. for himself. So I had read him and was impressed with his writing as well, which is why I was encouraging him with, you know, a relatively small reel and given the current state of the market of not being handed movies when you haven't directed a movie as much as maybe back in the 90s when you could do a bunch of commercials and get bad boys and stuff like that. That just model has kind of gone the way of the dodo. So I was encouraging Joe to generate an idea that he could write. And in the case of Revolt, there was even a world in which we would have had him write it first and then took it out but it just made a lot of sense with joe's personality and how clean this idea was and how commercial it felt it's like let's see if we can get a producer on board that believes in you to just help legitimize and guide this process even earlier rather than creating a spec script in a creative vacuum right maybe we'll have someone that can advise you on the parameters you should be thinking of as a first-time filmmaker and it feels that much more real so that became the strategy. And that's ultimately kind of what we put into place back with Brian. Mm-hmm. And how many uh, spec scripts, features, or pilots, or whatever did he have when you signed him? Um, because he was both, or was he mostly focused on his um, directing? Yeah, he's definitely you know directing is the is the aim to ultimately sure. be doing. And I'd only read again; it was many years ago. I think I'd only read one feature script of his, and he may have written other things. But you know, for me, I just want to get a sense of like what's the strongest thing that you have, so I can gotcha. get a sense of of the quality of your craft. And and what I read, I knew he was extremely talented in that sense. So. I knew, but I also knew that what I had read, and Joe acknowledged this, that it was maybe like the third or fourth movie you make. Because it was like one of those things you can't scale back into Revolt at three and a half million dollars and have it kind of serve the vision. Mm-hmm. It's a much bigger movie. It's an original idea, which is very hard to do in the sci-fi space at that budget these days. Because everything is kind of branded IP at that level for the most part. So we kind of decided like, this, there's something very exciting about this, but let's not focus our energy on this now or kind of just kind of like wedge a square peg into a rand hole, which would be this script and what the budget would need to be at. And let's just generate a new idea that could organically fit into something smaller and serve as kind of like a first film that he generated. And that's when he ultimately uh, conceived Revolt. Mm-hmm. And I want to say from when we started having those conversations to when he had the idea was a very, you don't have to like, you know, go Joe into like going off and coming up with something. It's like, can you, this is the strategy. He's like, I like the strategy. And then like two days later, it's like, I have an idea. And we went through a few ideas, of course, and he generates several ideas at once. And we talk about them. And then we ultimately, from that from that gaggle of ideas, Revolt was the one that felt like it was the one that we get the most traction. So we focused on that one when we went to market mm-hmm. uh, with the producers. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those, uh, we were talking earlier about writers, screenwriters, and also the filmmaker, screenwriter, directors, um, and how much more difficult it is to sort of because of the fact of the changing marketplace. Mm-hmm. I mean, no longer can you direct a short film 
win Sundance and all of a sudden you're being offered a huge big budget film that doesn't usually happen nowadays. Um, so how much more difficult is it for a, a writer who wants to direct as well um, and how can they sort of give you the most amount of ammunition for the marketplace hmm. to give them the best yeah, chance? It's, it's a great question. And yeah, and me, like I'm kind of a product of, like I've been in the industry about nine, nine years now since like my first day at the William Morris Agency mailroom till now. So it's always, and it was all, I was all pre-writer strike. So it's always been tough if you want to qualify it that way for young directors and writer directors to break into the movie industry sure. maybe then back of the heyday of commercial directors getting big movies or the boom of the indie market where all these exciting voices were breaking out in the 90s and early 2000s so for me it was all that i knew which is just the process for me involves someone if they're if they're a writer director then they have their own ability to generate their own opportunity right so that's great if they're equally talented as a writer director sure. some some are directors who can write but don't want to or aren't quite as crafty as that some are writers who wish they could direct but maybe have their own deficiencies there um, but if you're a true writer director then it's really about generating a piece of material that's practical that you know that you can speak to and convince people that you can make this film. Um, and there's a number of, of, of aspects that you have to consider in that, like how castable does it need to be? What genre is it going to be in? What scale? Um, but I think it all starts with a great screenplay. Mm -hmm. And if they write a great screenplay, then they can leverage that script to involve themselves at the, as the director. And if people really do love the script in, for whatever reason, the concept or the performances that are possible, you can put yourself in the game, having maybe not even directed much. Like if you've got a personality that's conducive, what people feel is that of a director, a communicator, someone they can trust, someone who's a decision maker and leadership skills, but still open and empathetic and works well with talent and various crew members. Like, I think you can go, I think anything's possible there. Like I wouldn't, like I have, I have worked with people that have shot stuff that will probably never show people because it's just not necessarily like done under the optimal circumstances to create the level and standards of acceptance here. Sure. But I know they can direct. I know they can do this film, for instance. So then it becomes about let's just make, let's just get a great screenplay. And in Joe's case, like when he's doing something that has massive production value to it, you do need to show that you're equipped to direct those certain physical elements of it. So like Joe had a background in material that was heavy in special effects. Mm -hmm. So it was okay for him to write a special effects movie. That made a lot of sense. Where if you've never directed any of that stuff, then you probably don't want to go off and write a movie that's going to have a bunch of special effects. Because they will expect you to have shown them something that shows that you can do that. Right. Those people should be writing a comedy or a thriller or something that's not going to rely on those production elements, for instance. Um, so if... If you, because directors, unlike writers, they generally, um, when they go into directing first, have to figure out um, 
a number of resources and relationships that make it possible for them to be practically shooting stuff. They have to be introduced to DPs and they have mm -hmm. to have an understanding of how to put together a crew, no matter how small, and go out and physically shoot stuff. And people can do it now on their iPhones and you can cut it on your, your MacBook. Like, right. So there's no excuses anymore as to not why you can't go out there and create content. You have to choose your stories wisely, your ideas wisely, tell a good story, and make sure it's something you can actually go out and practically create and have it live up to the standards. Because like we were talking about earlier, there's no grading on the curve. Right. So you just have to make sure that it, it feels like it has a voice, that it's distinctive, that it shows talent and understanding of craft and you know, a lot of it's intuition when you, you don't know it till you see it, but when you see, you know what it looks like. Um, and a lot of the way that my business works is I, like I've gone to film school and I understand the craft of writing and filmmaking, but I'm not a writer and a director. I just know my intuition tells me when someone has it, when someone's written something great. Mm -hmm. And so you just look for those elements in clients and then encourage them to lean into their strengths. And if they have like a strong intuitive ability to create ideas, write them well, and then convince people that they have a vision for it and in inspire people to surround them and participate, then you have the attributes to make it possible for yourself as a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And then a ton of more reverse engineered practical aspects have to come into place based on what you're specifically trying to accomplish. Right. Now, for those writers out there who want to be directors, but... Mm -hmm and believe that they can do it, have a confidence in themselves and that they know the material better than anybody, but have never set foot on a set, have never directed anything. Mm -hmm. Does that make them less attractive of a client if they're pushing to direct this piece of material and have no directing experience? Should they go out and shoot something as a proof of concept or even just to experiment and, and feel that whole process out? Because mm -hmm. it is very different than writing because it's much more obviously collaborative. Um, and there's just a technical aspect. There's different departments you have to work with. And, 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 you know, I think a writer should understand before wanting to be a director, having at least tried it. But from your perspective, is that something that uh, a writer who wants to direct, that has mm -hmm. never done it, should do? And does it make them a less attractive client saying, this is my script, it's brilliant, and you may agree that it's brilliant. I want to direct it. Mm -hmm. What would you say to that writer? Well, I would never rule anyone out sure. when it comes to the prospects of being a director if they have a point of view on how to transpose this into another medium. Like, assuming that they've actually seen films and understand <laughs> films, right. like whether they studied films or have been around films may be mutually exclusive because mm -hmm. there can even be just a natural... Um, understanding of how something works without actually being formally trained in it. So right. I would never kind of want to pre-brand someone as unqualified. I would say if you are genuinely interested in being a director, you it would make sense to me and it would maybe be a little bit of a red flag if they've been around a while, but they've never actually done any proactive exploration of that. Mm -hmm. Like maybe they were sequestered from the process because they lived on a farm in Idaho and didn't quite have all of that. But sure. barring some really exigent circumstance like that, I would think that they should, I would encourage people to, if they're genuinely serious about directing, 
to explore the dynamics of what directing entails. Even if it's just looking up YouTube videos or watching the behind the scenes DVD extras of movies and just getting a sense of what it looks and feels like, being a PA on a movie set or an intern at a production company, be around the process, learn through osmosis. Mm -hmm. And then maybe it's okay to actually apply yourself in a trial by fire situation. That is the fastest way to learn when something is at stake for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, because I do think there are a lot of people out there that they're gifted storytellers, so they start there. And then through the process of telling their story, they start to realize that they have a point of view on how to actually author this as a film, for instance. And they discover that through the process. And then if someone came to me with that aspiration, I would have a, a serious practical conversation about what that would look like while all the while getting a sense of how open they are to the process of uh, of confidently, step, confidently stepping into it, kind of learning in the moment, shadowing someone. Like I'm sure there's a way we could figure out an opportunity for them to set themselves up more to win, mm -hmm. but not having to overanalyze the structured process of what it means to eventually be in a director's chair. Because I think all, lo all roads can lead to Rome if you have what it takes as a storyteller, as a decision maker, as a personality mm -hmm. to be able to handle that. And then to your earlier point about the technical aspects of that, because sure. yes, there is a practical way in which films are made. I do think that, you know, you, that's something that you can learn rather simply these days. You don't have to go through four years of film school to learn sure. all that. You can read one book or you can watch one one or two like you know behind the scenes things of it and get a sense of that. And then as a representative, I would just need to surround that person with producers and people that are fully aware that this is someone that's not gonna be able to know everything. Right. So they have to be there to watch and protect that person, right. myself included with them, just because they're, they're mindful and self-aware enough to know that they don't have to pretend that they know how to do all of this. Right. Um, and in some cases, they might have to fake it till they make it, um, but not to the point at which they're kind of misleading their, the people that need to know their true understanding of this process because they, right. be, they could get a lot of assistance there. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think directors you know, have options that they can consider and they should put, I encourage them to put them into place, but they don't have to feel you didn't go to film school and get a directing degree or haven't spent a lot of time on set that it, you shouldn't try that there's no point in even attempting to, oh, be sure. a, to be a storyteller. And nowadays, the scale of someone getting like a big, huge Hollywood blockbuster, they don't give those to people that haven't at least made one film. Sure. And, uh, and you can do a small film and then get a big film if that's your goal. Um, but when you're making a small film, there's a lot less at stake. So, you know, there is a little bit more learning as you go aspect to it with the right producer around you. Um, we're on a big film, there's too much at stake to not feel like you have the competency to be able to like keep this thing running and, sure. or you're gonna bulk under the pressure of that. So I think a lot of that does come down to your career aspirations and your personality and your relationship with pressure mm -hmm. and responsibility and decision making. Um, 
And a lot of that you don't know until you sit with someone and you spend time getting to know them and know where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are and where those weaknesses are going to get in their way in, in, turn, in relation to their aspirations and if or what needs to be done to address them now, if right. at all. Like sometimes you just like, just rub, just put that weakness underneath the, the rug and pretend that it's not there because let's just focus on what's working because that's not, that's not gonna be an issue right now mm -hmm. anyway. Um, that's, that would be the issue if you're directing Star Wars, but let's just focus on getting your smaller movie made and, and then we can dust that off later and, and, and figure it out. Because you wanna build a confidence around someone's abilities first and foremost. Right. So that would be kind of the broad approach to kind of advising someone in that way. Now, what about the writer who wants to direct, who has never directed anything? If it's at all possible, and again, we had talked about that really there's no excuse not to. You can basically shoot a movie of some sort on your phone. Mm -hmm. My, you know, the phones now, they shoot 4K, and you can even edit on your phones, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no real reason not to shoot your own short film or shoot something, um, at least in terms of cost, unless you're trying to shoot a huge you know, sci-fi piece or something. Or, you know, but you could, if you want to really direct, shoot something. Is that something that, that you would, would help having a good short film? Sure, yeah. Like if you've, if you've been proactive, gone out and created something that's really impressive and you want to be a director, then you've got to, it's great to prove that you sure. can. A lot, people then have evidence. It's not faith anymore. Um, I've gone on faith before. I prefer evidence, but if it's not there, <laughs> you got to trust your gut. Um, but at the end of the day, eventually someone's got to make a decision based on faith sure. when it comes to young filmmakers because they're not going to be qualified or have enough to really justify what they're being hired to do. Mm -hmm. But if you can cover your bases and protect yourself with some sort of footage that is somewhat representative of what you ultimately want to be as a storyteller and a filmmaker in a certain genre, then by all means figure out a way to get it done. Like, to ruminate on that superfluously, to not have any real reason to stop yourself other than the question, then I'd say, just go do it. Right. And then it's a question about whether or not you actually have the right story to tell and you have those resources, but that all can be figured out. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't have representation, and most people that create their first pieces of content don't. We aren't here to actually like facilitate how they learn to become filmmakers. Right. We're here to actually like take what they know and put them in the system, which is very unforgiving and assumes that they are already are kind of at right. least aware enough. And so it's nice if they've actually done that education. Um, and aside from that, like, because a lot of it can be inefficient and unnecessary aspects because they just don't know what you need to know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once you're in inside the club, if you want to call it that, and you're working with representation and you've done a, a round of, of, of the town, you kind of know where to focus your energy and what's the information that you need and what's the information that's bullshit. And then you can be far more efficient mm -hmm. about how you're ultimately trying to guide your projects and put your career together. Um, but I can't think of any reason why you wouldn't attempt to create something if that's your aspiration. 
It just, it just has to be something that makes sense for what you're ultimately trying to accomplish. If you're trying to be um, a thriller director, don't go shoot a fun or your die commercial. Like, right. you know, like, it, 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 listen, I guess shooting, shooting experience is experience, but if you want to be efficient about it, try to create something that bridges to what you're ultimately trying to do on a bigger scale. And then you're thinking a little bit more tactically sure. and, and um, forward thinking about how you can be building something substantive and solvent from the whole process. So, mm-hmm. so I think that's something that can be accomplished without like the whole information of representation or the film school routes. Like just right. tell a story, get your phone, get a camera, network, and put some cool stuff together. You know, surprise us. Someone, I remember, this isn't in relation to this in particular, this topic, but someone had emailed me in the past and said they want to direct, they're a writer who wants to direct, but they know it's harder to break in as a director. Is it bad protocol to send you a script, they want to be a writer, they're querying you, they don't mention the directing part of it. Mm -hmm. If you read their writing, you want to sign them as a writer and they come out and say, oh, by the way, I want to direct. Is that bad protocol? Do you look at that and go, okay, that's... No, I think... It, I, I'm excited if someone has aspirations. Okay. I, you know, I, I, when they tell me, like, again, I don't think it's withholding information. Sure. If you don't, I think if you... I think if you're leading with a script that you want to direct and you're querying a random person, you should probably not mention that. Mm-hmm. Because, like, it might depending on someone's personality, they might feel like, well, they're automatically encumbering the process because sure. they, you know, they're just one more hurdle we have to overcome with right. their expectations. So, you know, you can kind of take it in stride and just get some traction with someone liking your writing and then have just a transparent conversation about the practicality of potentially directing it because that representative might have a point of view on that when it comes to the scale of the thing that you've written and the timing of that and the process of that. And if someone is, if this is the one story they really want to tell as a director, then they can put that on record once they're kind of in the more incentivized and intimate discussions with a potential representative or the representative. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they can just kind of figure out the best way to go about it. Um, so I think it's just how important it is, is it to be a director of something that you've written and of, of this particular story. Because you don't have to direct every story that you write if sure. you want to be a writer-director. Um, but if you really do want to be a director first and foremost, then you should be writing things that you know you can direct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's just going to be a much easier conversation to have right. in convincing all the powers that be that you're ready to do this if you haven't got the resume or the reel suggest with great degrees of evidence that you're ready. Right. Um, but, um, but I encourage people if they have a, a desire to go beyond the page and become a writer, a director, a producer to, um, not, with, to not be embarrassed by that and to not feel like they can't express that but when they express it and how might be something you might want to consider and not just come out of the gates and give your whole long you know laundry list of exactly what you want to do in the industry just kind of start with what makes practical sense and then let your representatives also assist you in the process of accomplishing that right yeah i mean i think uh, at least from the question that i was interpreting it 
wasn't necessarily that they were embarrassed, but what gives them the better shot at you actually saying? Like, if somebody queries you and says, I have a script that I want to direct, are you more or less likely to read it versus here's a script, I'm a writer, and they're querying you on that sense? Would it make a difference? If yeah. you like the log line and it sounds interesting, would it make a difference if they want to direct and they say For that? For me personally, like, because I work with directors, sure. um, I would be okay with that because some representatives don't represent directors, they only represent writers. Sure. So like you might not want, you might need to know your audience mm-hmm. before you posit what your expectations are. Um, but again, I don't think it's integral information at that first touch point to have to put in there and less is more when sure. it comes to getting people interested in this town. Like Absolutely. the more succinct and specific and on point you can be, the better um, without losing anything in translation. So um, I wouldn't interpret it as being kind of um, that they were uh, misleading me if right. they didn't say that sure. in the query. I would understand the practical reasons as they wouldn't. <laughs> right. When Johnny Pereira queried me with the Miss Sloan script, he didn't tell me he was a Brit living in South, South Korea, Korea. Right. smartly right. because right. that would have maybe deterred me considering the material in the first place because right. that's a lot of red flags of not living in the country, not having a work visa, you know, being so disassociated from the process. Right. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, less is more, pick your battles, try to get a bite and then you could open up mm-hmm. the conversation even further than that. That would probably the more, be the more basic advice I would give on that question. Right. right. Um, and obviously with, with Johnny and Miss Sloan, you got the query and with Joe, uh, you had found him mm-hmm. online uh, through a short film, I think you had mentioned. Yep. Um, for those writer-directors out there who, other than festivals and winning awards, you know, or even for writers, you know, winning, you know, or being a semifinalist in Nickel or whatever, um, how can they, and queries, obviously, how can they put themselves in the best position. Like you had said, you had found uh, Joe online. Mm-hmm. Um, should they, should these writers and writer directors, filmmakers have their own website? I mean, how do they promote themselves online to reach the broadest, oops, to reach the broadest possible audience to have the greatest reach, you know, cause I'm, you probably don't spend as much time online searching for clients these days, but there are plenty of assistants at these agencies who are doing mm-hmm. that. Um, so how can these writers, re- you know, reach the most amount of... of- yeah, well, the, the internet in all its forms have, has been a, obviously a transformative invention and opportunity for, for everyone, but especially, I think, for directors because they right. can put up their material publicly on YouTube and Vimeo. And I do firmly believe that the really impressive stuff mm-hmm. gets passed around. Mm-hmm. We, someone sees it, it gets shared, it gets tagged, it gets kind of profiled, it gets the short of the week, and then it gets into the inbox or the right hands, and then that person has incoming interest. So I, I encourage legitimate directors that are out there filming and shooting stuff proactively and creating quality content to, to just unless there's some sort of like real tactical reason to withhold it from the public because mm-hmm. they're working with a representative or a producer and they're trying to like have it 
you know, hit the airwaves at a time that's conducive with the material and how they want to tactically put it together. Sure. I think once it's ready, put it on major media platforms that are accessible to the public and, um, and, and, and fan that flame and be proud and scream it from the veritable rooftops of the internet of like what you've created so it can be passed around. Um, and yes, if you can find ways to put it, submit it into festivals, like again, you ha I encourage you to filmmakers to be aggressive with the resources at their fingertips when it comes to the contests and the internet. Like it's re if it's good, you just want to put it out there. Mm -hmm. Like it's okay if it's, if you're not precious about it, it's okay to just machine gun fire that out there because you don't have any other choice. You don't, you don't have the ability to play chess when you only have checker pieces at that point in your career. So you really are just making these binary moves to try to get interest. And when you get someone that is interested in working with you, then the process might become a little bit more strategic. Right. And how, like I've worked with people where I found something and then once I read that, I'm like, we got to pull it offline now. Right. I don't want anyone seeing that for various reasons. I want to do something with it later. I think we can do better, yada, yada. Then it becomes about that. But when you're just trying to build relationships based on the quality of your work, right. utilize the internet mm -hmm. in any and all of its forms. And yes, there are more prominent places for screenwriters. We get the Blacklist website or the various contests and certain websites that um, directors can put on public material. But like, just be proactive and aggressive and like social media it's just you know it's it's just like it's like a spark on a gasoline fire if it's good um so i, I think there's no excuses now to get things into us like you can put stuff up on your twitter account and some the random right. person could share that retweet that and suddenly it's retweeted and before you know it ends up in the tweet of someone that because like Every one person has 10,000 people, then they have 10,000 people. Right. And put three sharers has now gone exponentially to, you know, 40,000 people could right. theoretically see it. And that could happen in minutes. Right. So it's, it's like, it's out there. Distribution and access is never been more right. um, opportune. Mm -hmm. So the, the real kick is creating the right piece of content and putting it out there in such a way that it can actually stand out among the clutter. Right. And that Which is also something that the internet created. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a, it's kind of like its own gift and curse in that right. sense because it's now just a cacophony of noise, but when there's this perfect harmonic note that kind of chimes within it, it will catch the ear of people that have taste or people that are sure. interested in discovering people from that form and not always concerned with like vetting and referrals and all that kind of stuff. They just have an intuition about their own instincts about people and say that, that is cool. I want to talk or meet to that, meet that person and make a decision on whether or not I feel like we can accomplish something at this stage in their life. Right. And I thrive on that kind of process myself. I'm excited about being the touch point of that young, obscure writer or director and then incubating them and then figuring out the best way to expose them in a way to the various relationships you spent years building. Right. So people rely on you to find those fresh voices and build them up. So by the time they come to them, they're ready. Right. Um, we, we've talked in the past, and I've spoken to a lot of different reps about this, in terms of 
how important is it to live in Los Angeles? Mm-hmm. And for screenwriters, obviously it's, it's a huge help because there's lots of meetings and things. Although if you can make it out to LA and you live somewhere else, that still can work and mm-hmm. Skype and whatever. TV, it's sort of imperative. If you want to be a TV writer, you kind of have to be here. Yep. For a writer-director who wants to be a filmmaker, um, where do they land? How important is it for them to live in Los Angeles, or is it possible, not within the realm of possibility, but I mean, yeah. is it so reasonably possible to live in St. Louis or Orlando or wherever? And, and Yeah, like I think if there's no practical reason why you can't be in Los Angeles, then why not come here? Like I get maybe it's expensive or there might be things holding people back, be it family or job or whatnot. But like if, I think if you can be here, it's just one less thing that someone can say no to. Because there are stigmatisms about foreign, people that live in other countries or other cities, just feels like, oh, it's so tough because you only come in once a a year or, and so like, so I think if you can be here, great. However, like, you don't need to be here to have people that live here see or read your material. Sure. So if you really kind of want to approach it somewhat prudently or economically because you don't, you aren't from Southern California or you're not clear about whether or not you need to be there when you're to create your contents, then it's okay to go fishing and put your material out there on those various websites like we discussed and see if they get traction. However, you're completely outside the network when you're not living in Los Angeles for the most part, unless you have someone that can refer you to various people that you can connect with over the phone or the internet. So when you're in Los Angeles, starting out, cutting your teeth, assuming you can still create your content here, you can still have the the bandwidth to go out and shoot what you need to shoot, um, you have the opportunity to get more in touch with people that are of and within the element of Hollywood. And that's just the proactive nature of networking and getting in various writers groups or going to industry mixers, like there's access. It's not like this impenetrable wall around Mm -hmm. the city in that sense. So, and those relationships might be integral in having the quality of your work get recognized outside of the, like I said, the cacophony of sound that is the internet, for instance. It might allow you to point and shoots a little bit better. Um, so it's not, it's within the realm of possibility to be discovered outside Los Angeles. Obviously I've done it with people and, and, um, and, uh, but if you have the resources and the, and, and nothing holding you back, then I encourage people to be as close to the city as possible, assuming they have the intention to take advantage of the fact they're here. Mm -hmm. If you just want to be a writer and move to LA and then just sit in your room and write all the time and put it on the internet away, then yeah, you don't need to be here unless you get someone who pings you and you want to go take a coffee at the Starbucks down the street, that's cool. But you know, that's even tough to get that ping because the material's got to be strong enough. And if you're somewhere else, you'd have no problem still connecting with them because obviously there's planes and ways to get here. So, so I think that um, I think you can kind of take it or leave it, but why not be here if you have no reason stopping you? Right, right. Um, and obviously, there's the work component too. If you're not American, then it's completely impractical to live anywhere in the states, let alone Los Angeles. And they have no choice but to create opportunity in their own country and use the internet or gotcha. referral to relationships. Right, right. 
because uh, it's just an immigration process and a work process that just they can't they don't have the luxury of that I'm from Canada I had to go through all that just to legitimize myself in the country and I know it's right. not easy and I empathize with people that go through that um, but it shouldn't stop anyone from believing in their talents and getting their material out there in some form because mm -hmm. we can get it yeah yeah um, I guess I also just wanted to touch on um, filmmakers who haven't had luck landing a rep and don't have that sort of you know base to sort of build their career um, a lot of them talk about shooting their own project or going to producers themselves and this mm -hmm. type of thing which you know a lot of producers won't read it unless it comes from a rep or mm -hmm. whatever um, I guess my, my question would be is your advice to just continually shotgun it out there to anybody and everybody who will look at it or to focus on finding that rep so that you have, you're legitimized and can get to those producers or they can get to those producers for you with you um, because you don't, you're, you're not dividing your energy up among a hundred production companies and a hundred yeah. reps, you know, focus on, or is it just well, however you can get your material read? Well, being that. a representative, I value the role that I play and my partners at agencies sure. and, and law firms. So I think if you, if you're thinking about it most, intelligently and you have a good piece of material or something that you shot you would want to start with targeting representatives because if you go out there kind of shotgunning stuff out there like you said it probably will be met with a lot of resistance because there is kind of that whole process of coming through referrals and representatives anyway right. but also you might just get into the not best relationship that way there's a lot of producers and people out there that are hustling and just trying to find anything and everything they can think that they could like put out there, but they might not necessarily be able to accomplish it in the best way possible. And it's tragic if a great piece of material ends up in the wrong hands and that person's sure. kind of codified that relationship in some way and then they realize after the fact that this is not the best place to get their project. And they'll be elated that anyone at that point said yes, right. but a representative, we can help filter and vet that process for them. So I would encourage anyone to start at least with the representative circles by whatever means necessary to get it to us through the queries and the referrals or winning a contest and those stuff are, a lot of us are alerted by that by the people that run the contests and we judge in some of these things. So I think it's fair to just try to focus on that if you really believe in your material and see if you can land someone that can help you adv advise you on how to best expose that material, mm -hmm. first and foremost. And maybe barring that, assuming that there's just not something fundamentally flawed about the material, then you might have to open up your access panels there and go broader and then just have an eyes wide open process of making sure that you're trusting your instincts and being very selective and prudent about the people you get in business with. Um, but in my personal experience, if someone is properly utilizing the channels of getting material out there through all the various things we've talked about today in other podcasts, I think if it's not being received well, it's probably there's something not there on the page mm -hmm. or yet. And it really is less about shotgunning it further and wider as much as about getting feedback 
and taking that feedback to refine what you have mm -hmm. and making it stronger or maybe realizing this was more like the the script that you're cutting your teeth on but it really is about writing something new versus just focusing on that one thing that you feel this is the one right. if you feel on an intuitive level that it truly is trust your gut and go the distance but you just got to know when to kind of pivot when to throw in the towel on something when to be open-minded to feedback make the necessary refinements if not transformatively and reapproach the process because i do tell people as my business evolved as well i become more selective with taking people along so i'm not a volume-based representative i can't represent a hundred people like right. you know i have 20 people and they keep me extremely busy because right. i just the nature of the way that i work with my clients so i become that much more selective so I think it puts a, a tremendous onus on these filmmakers, and these writers, to make sure their content is as strong as it can be when it comes to us. Right. Because the, the, the developmental nature of writers and filmmakers now is less appealing to me as they're ready, now let's activate them. Right. And they've done their due diligence and they're a, they have a savant-like talent of writing like a Johnny Pereira or someone who's cut their teeth and developed a real craft drafting on their natural talent like other people that I represent and um, and then um, just have that whole let's see how we can bring this material together and um, best service that client um, but I I think if the um, if the material isn't strong enough and you keep peddling it it could end up being a waste of someone's time um, with the person that created it and it could ultimately maybe hurt their chances because like I have some people that, have, that I, I, I get queries sometimes and I don't accept them all but I, I have some people where I see that name come up and I'm, I'm not even looking at the email anymore because I've read two scripts by them and I've told them uh, and then right. like but they keep so like that person maybe maybe five years from now they could be the next Aaron Sorkin but with me they're already dead right right because of the way that they chose to approach this material that wasn't even close right. to the standard which me suggests that they hadn't even read a few scripts that have sold in Hollywood to see sure. what the bar looks like because they're telling me this is the greatest thing they've ever that's ever been written and I say it wouldn't even get you you know in the first round of a, the the lowest grade screenwriting competition right. And that tells me they're not doing their due diligence. Right. So I think everyone does their due diligence first and then approach the representative circle second, listen to the feedback. And if you get genuine interest, lean into your reps and then, you know, consummate that relationship professionally. And then let's figure out the best tactical approach to getting the career going. Right. right. Yeah. But there's a lot of, listen, there's a lot of shady reps out there as well. But I think when it comes to producers, because like, you know, you, what is a producer? Like you put your hand on a rock and you say you're a producer, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. And you know, obviously there's tr tremendously talented producers sure. in this town and they've legitimized themselves through their efforts. And there's some that are, God bless them, hustling and don't yeah. know their assholes from their elbows. Right. But if they kind of take advantage of some of those younger naive writers getting into like these fraptions and controlling their material and like, I would never encourage a writer to ever turn over their material to someone without some sort of transaction. Sure. Because if they won't put any money into it of any kind, then chances are like, you get, they better be vetted heavily to be an asset at that point. Right. 
Um, I just think you can get into a lot of trouble if you don't have someone advising you. Sure. And you can just be really excited about anyone being interested in the we something we create. It's like you know when someone tells you that you're baby's cute you know like you just you like that person yeah, yeah, thank exactly, you you know right. that's how people can feel about their material rightfully so they've they've they've, they've brought that project into existence they're going to be sensitive about it and they're going to be protective but they have to make sure that they're finding the right team right absolutely um so this we've talked a lot about uh filmmakers writer directors in this one so uh, I just wanted to, we normally ask you near the end of the podcast if you have any sort of last advice for screenwriters. You've covered a lot of stuff, and I feel like we could end it just how we've ended it because you had some uh, great advice near the end there, but I drag these things on. And mm-hmm. um, what sort of advice for filmmakers, for the writer-directors out there, for the auteurs out there, what final advice would you give to them as they sort of make their push to break into the industry? Hmm. Um, the writer-directors making their push to get into the industry. Um, I think, like, be aware of what's out there. Mm -hmm. And so you have a sense of the landscape and the quality standards that that exist. Um, And maybe use that as not just inspiration, but as kind of like... uh, a barometer and a guide as to what your material needs to kind of look like and feel like and exist on a certain level before even really attempting to put yourself into certain relationships. Like it's all comparable. Like if you've got, you know, I'll use the wrong word here, but if you've got mediocre material, you can probably find a mediocre person to help put it into a mediocre existence and make mediocre money. Mm -hmm. But if you really are aspiring to do something great, make sure that you're keen on what's the stuff that's really part of the conversation out there that's moving the needle for people getting getting client getting these young filmmakers their start in the industry and then study that and then apply that information maybe if more like through osmosis into just guiding how you generate your material it's going to be distinctive and it's going to be your own brand of storytelling and all these wonderful things that have you stand out more than fit in but just make sure that what you're presenting is equal to the need and quality of work that feels like it gets it done. Otherwise, a lot of people on both sides, our side and people trying to break in, can be wasting their time. It's just a futile effort because they just haven't quite brought themselves to a place where they can be taken seriously if they're targeting a certain level, for instance, a certain quality of taste and caliber of representative or producer whatnot so i think you know paying attention to again the internet's transformed the way that we can access what's being talked about out there and shown and i think that they can get a real keen sense of you know what it feels like can get it done Mm -hmm. um because i still to this day and i think it's inevitable I'm going to see and have sent a lot of material that, at least for me, in my personal subjective opinion, is like, I don't think this gets it done. Like, I just, you know, assuming you're not fundamentally untalented and you do have the ability to grow and develop into someone that can create something stronger and more representative of your true talent, I think you need to be doing something different, which might be getting a better understanding of 
the industry and how it's operating and how it's cultivating and curating certain material, as well as becoming more self-aware of the quality of one's own work. Mm. So I think a lot of young breaking in kind of filmmakers and writers are maybe attempting it at the wrong points in their development. Right. And I think there's ways in which they can apply patience and persistence and education and the wherewithal of doing the work so that when they come to the industry, they don't have to face or tolerate as much rejection as they are. Because like if you can tolerate rejection and keep growing from it, then it's going to fortify one's ability to really survive in this town sustainably for sure. a long time. But it can also be confidence crushing and develop a tremendous amount of unnecessary insecurity if you've just, you know, stepped on the court too soon in your development to play in the NBA. Right, or it happens a lot in the NFL with quarterbacks. Yeah. Young quarterbacks drafted by terrible teams, you know, and just started right away, and they just never get to develop. They yeah. They just get hammered, and they become... And it, it, but it, because of that first exposure mm -hmm. being such a critical one, it could be detrimental for someone. Not to say that you can't reinvent and rise back up from the ashes and have give yourself a second professional life. Sure. But I think if it's avoidable to go in and set yourself up to fail, then avoid it mm -hmm. and make sure that you're really doing your due diligence through all the various ways of getting feedback and getting a sense of how the, the system works and what materials landing and God, I just feel like in this day and age with so much access to information on the internet and whatnot, there's no excuse to not know what's going on. Absolutely. And doesn't matter if you live here or not, you can get a pretty good sense of this without ever having set foot within the walls of the industry. Like when Johnny Pereira wrote Miss Sloan, just to hark on my, as, a, as an analogy, never a Brit living in South Korea teaching English wrote a script about an American lobbyist within the corrupt American political system. Mm -hmm. People read the script and ask me, so did he work in D.C. as a right. lobbyist? No, it's 100% internet research. Right. That's it. Never set foot in D.C., maybe spent a week of his life in America, just had a, an opinion about it, and did four months' worth of research. But the authentication of the final product through the amount of information that he curated into the succinct story he told was just an was an effort of due diligence and work ethic and intelligence and applying oneself. So sure. that's why, as an example, like I think you can do an impressive, impressive amount of things from a distance if you're willing to roll your sleeves up and learn. Right. So I think a lot of people can get really hot and bothered and excited about just getting going, but what gets you going needs to be the thing that can really activate you if you're targeting certain levels and trying to get legitimate representation and really be a rock that goes into a pond and creates a splash with a lot of ripples that you can draft on for years from that. If you come in with your pebbles and you whimper, you know, you might not survive the first round of tremendously bad feedback and maybe it could have been avoided by not targeting sure. it with that project at that level. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, I think there's, I believe that that intuition about how, when, and how to go about it can be 
something that people can really understand a little bit better right and apply themselves there you go be sure to follow scott on twitter it's at sg car two r's 82 um that's at sg car eight two and if you have questions about the craft or business of writing you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes there's no and in the middle there just at scriptscribes thank you again scott as always it's a pleasure no thank you i appreciate it and be sure to check out Revolt in theaters and on demand on multiple platforms November 17th. And thank you all for listening. Rap is law and I'm passing the bar. All verses considered like I'm NP. Oh, and we are killing them. Everyone I roll with. Gunning for the top spot, the opposite of hopeless. My flow is the dopest of any.